Hi, and welcome to The Horn. This is a special bonus episode on the war in Sudan from our sister crisis group podcast, Hold Your Fire. Enjoy. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about the war in Sudan. The Rabbit Support Forces, or RSF, are gaining ground in Sudan's western region of Darfur. They are reported to be penetrating and controlling much of the vast area and have taken over strategic cities like Niala. Security experts say this is a brand new threat to the unity of Sudan. Experts are comparing it to the current division in Libya. Last April, two rival military factions in Sudan went to war. Exactly who started the fighting is unclear, but the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, led by Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, or Hameti, had refused to integrate under army command. The RSF is a paramilitary force that grew out of the Janjaweed, which forced a genocidal war in Darfur in Sudan's west two decades ago on behalf of long-serving Sudanese ruler Omar al-Bashir. After Bashir was overthrown in 2019, the RSF and the Sudanese Armed Forces, or SAF, which are led by Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, had agreed to share power with civilians. But in 2021, they ousted civilian leaders in a coup before turning on each other earlier this year. The first weeks of the fighting left much of the capital Khartoum in ruins. Front lines then appeared to settle. But over the past few weeks, the RSF has routed the army from most of Darfur. If people want more background on the war and its implications, you can check out previous episodes. In some, though, Sudan's collapse is a disaster in its human toll. It's displaced almost 6 million people. Half the population now need life-saving aid. It's also a disaster because of the country's importance to Horn of Africa and Red Sea security. But with Western capitals in particular consumed by Ukraine and now Gaza, peacemaking efforts so far have been pretty meagre. So what do the RSF's gains in Darfur mean for the war and what can we expect from talks in the Saudi capital Jeddah between the two sides? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast Shewit Walden Mikhail, who is Crisis Group Sudan expert, and Alan Boswell, our Horn of Africa director. Shewit, Alan, welcome back on. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having us. So uh, why don't we start, Shewit, do you want to talk a little bit about these gains that the RSF has made over the last few weeks? Well, for the past couple of months, the war in Sudan seemed uh, to sort of reach a stalemate. Both warring parties seemingly exhausted from months-long confrontation. But the RSF launched a major offensive in the last week of October against a very big infantry division of the SAF, the 16th Infantry Division headquarters in Niala, which is the capital of South Darfur. This marked the beginning of RSF's offensive against SAF positions in Darfur particularly, after they won this battle in South Darfur, they've, after intense fighting, I must say, lasted for three days and led by Hemeti's own brother, Abdurrahim, they have been on the offensive ever since. So within a week, they have advanced and captured all South garrisons in West Darfur and Central Darfur, in addition to South Darfur. They've also advanced in West Kordofan. Um, they've been seen in White Nile and Jersey states. And just so people understand, so West Kordofan, White Nile, these are further south and areas that hadn't seen much RSF presence. Absolutely. 
Yes, Jazeera states, what Nile states are considered to be the army's strongholds. But now it seems like um, the RSS is venturing in these areas because of mobilization by the army in these areas, but also because they want to control the areas along the oil pipeline. And so the RSF now holds Western Darfur plus Central Darfur, Southern Darfur, as you talked about. What about Northern Darfur, where RSF fighters appear to be not only fighting the army, but also running into other armed groups, former rebels that signed in 2020 the Juba peace deal, which in essence gave some of them positions in local and national government? So Northern Darfur is a bit tricky for the RSF because the, uh, the number of Juba peace signatories, most of them are from North Darfur. And the situation has been extremely tense in the past week as the RSF advances in these areas, particularly in Al-Fashir, which is the capital of North Darfur. So the RSF has already taken SAF garrisons in Kutum. And most recently, the Um Kadada Brigade has also fallen to the RSF. But uh, the 6th Infantry in Al-Fashir itself is still controlled by the army. And there, it, the situation is very tense with JPA signatories creating barricades and stationed across the city to sort of disband any sort of confrontation between the army and the RSF. I think what we're watching is the RSF, since the beginning of the war, has had a very firm control over most of Darfur and is obviously the dominant actor there. But the army did maintain a series of garrisons especially in the various state capitals, but also in some other rural areas. And yes, you do have these other armed groups that RSF will have to contend with. But in terms of the war between them and SAF, we're watching basically a complete rout of SAF. Within the course of about a week, you had three state capitals uh, fall to RSF. And like Shewitt said, they're basically circling in on the last remaining SAF capital. So we're nearing a, a situation in which, yes, there are all these other armed groups, but essentially RSF will have consolidated its control from the military in, in Darfur and, and soon probably in most of the west of the country. And how do those armed groups, the Juba signatories especially, I mean, what's shaping their decisions about whether or not to get involved in the fighting. So uh, the JPA signatories supported the coup in 2021. And after the war started, they never really left their positions. Particularly, we can take an example of Amini Minawi, who's still the governor of Darfur. But uh, most recently, other JPA signatories who are considered to be aligned to the RSF were sacked from, from their positions allotted to them through the peace agreement in Juba. So, I mean, it's very complex. Uh, so far, they've remained neutral, but some of them, like Minimanawi and Jibril, uh, they've been, they're in principle uh, aligned with the army. And they seem to be the ones who are increasingly sort of confronting the RSF in North Darfur. But they also have some grievance that the army did not allow their forces to integrate within the army. So they don't see this as their fight. Um, they want to control their positions. They want to uh, maintain security in the areas they control. But it doesn't mean that they're willing to fight uh, on behalf of the army, no. And in the early stages of the war in West Darfur in particular, there were a lot of reports of RSF violence against civilians, particularly from the Masalit community. A lot of people that fled to Chad had these terrible stories of what had happened to their communities at the hands of RSF fighters. I mean, has that 
continued in other parts of Darfur? Uh, we've heard uh, similar stories recently as the RSF tried to take their garrisons in West Darfur. It's again the Masalit. We also hear, you know, the RSF is looting and they do go after civilians. They, we have seen uh, a number of RSF soldiers whipping, harassing civilians, especially also prisoners of war have experienced very inhuman treatment in the hands of RSF soldiers. And Richard, just to take a step back, RSF and these other armed groups, you know, they have a very long history of being at opposing sides of conflict um, against each other, you know, going back two decades to the war in Darfur. And the progenitor to RSF, the Janjaweed, were being armed by the Bashir regime to fight all these rebel groups who are mostly from non-Arab groups. And so you have the calculations of the actors, of these armed actors themselves and their leaders. Um, but underneath that, you have a very combustible situation um, of questionable command and control, lots of uh, history and hatred. And the concern uh, that we've seen is you have these clashes and these attacks between RSF and SAF and potentially involving these other groups, but this can degenerate into just outright ethnic and racial violence, which is essentially what we ended up seeing in the worst of this in West Darfur early in the conflict. Can we move then to the capital, to Khartoum and its twin cities, Omdurman and Khartoum North or Bari, which, besides the violence in Darfur, what the capital has really been the epicentre of much of the fighting over the last seven months. What's happening there now? Well, fighting in Khartoum continues. The RSF obviously controls much of Khartoum, uh, Bahri and Omdurman. The current fighting is fighting has intensified in Omdurman uh, recently, the RSF announced that it overtook the armed corps, which is a major defeat for the army. But, I mean, the RSF has been on a roll, taking on South Garrisons, and it's no different in Khartoum. Uh, they control most areas. Uh, the army is now controlling uh, three major garrisons. The engineer score is the, the major one in Omdurman. And in between this area, a, a whole neighborhood has been held hostage between or they're caught between uh, the engineer's core and the RSF, and they've been having a very, very bad time accessing basic supplies. But in other areas, people are trying to cope as much as they can. They do manage to smuggle uh, food and other supplies, especially in Khartoum proper, uh, where the RSF doesn't have a lot of checkpoints anymore, but just patrols the streets uh, on motorbikes. But the conflict itself is ongoing. And all of the army garrisons are besieged. Do you think it's fair then to, to sort of say that the capital is controlled by the RSF, except for these bases, which are, as you say, surrounded, but which the military still control? Yeah. If the RSF managed to take the remaining garrisons, then the RSF has completely won in Khartoum. It does control large parts of uh, Khartoum, Omdurman and Bahri, but um, northern Omdurman particularly is not under their control. So uh, we can't yet say that the RSF controls the whole of uh, the city. So we've talked about Darfur in the west of Sudan, talked about Khartoum, the capital. If we zoom out and look at the whole country, broadly speaking, who controls what and what should we be sort of watching for? 
I think the best way of describing this is Sudan has already collapsed and it's essentially already divided into roughly two and, you know, crisscrossed uh, within those two main camps are a number of other significant armed groups. Um, But you have the army and its bureaucracy, which is increasingly controlled by people from uh, the old Bashir regime who has decamped to Port Sudan in the very far east. And then, um, as we've discussed, uh, the RSF is consolidating control in the west and roughly uh, the divide line is something like the White Nile River right now, although it's a big question of how static that dividing line will be. And then Khartoum basically sits there in the middle contested. One of the major questions going ahead is, are we looking um, as an ossified sort of divided Sudan? And I think one of our major concerns is even that doesn't look stable and that, you know, this will continue disintegrating even from there. So we heard a bit up top about Hemeti the commander of the RSF, uh, his background, the background of the RSF itself. But what's your sense of how much the RSF has changed over the course of seven months fighting? I mean, what do you sense of how much command and control Hemeti and his family, Shuit, you mentioned his brother, Abdul Rahim, being important to some of the offensives in Darfur, but how much can Hemeti and his family dictate what different bits of the RSF are doing in different parts of the country? So in some ways, there's more than one RSF. There's obviously a sort of core RSF, core trained fighters, um, probably a a chain of command that exists there. Um, But as this war has been going on, um, the RSF has recruited widely. Its support base, both its core and this wider recruitment, it comes from uh, what are these Sahelian Arab identifying groups largely from what is sometimes called the Bagara Belt, uh, named after the, the Bagara. But these are nomadic desert uh, camel and cow herding groups that span across a bottom part of Sudan, across Chad, um, and even into uh, Niger. And RSF very much feeds off of a sort of almost nationalism um, uh, among this group. And so we, we see at one hand, there is a paramilitary structure that was there before the war. Um, Hemeti, it looks like, has remained in control in, in Khartoum largely. Um, but then you've had, uh, you know, you've had a number of wider tribal militias join a various free-for-all of groups who, you know, have, have surely joined to loot. And with their own agendas, we've seen Hemeti or one of his brothers is basically there in person. A command and control significantly increases. And that's what we saw right before this offensive that took place in Darfur, in which, as Shuit said, Abdurrahim, Hemeti's brother, showed up on the ground and led this offensive. Um, but before he did that, there was a lot of infighting among these tribal Arab militias. Alan, you mentioned this sort of nationalism, Darfur, Arab, Arab from the peripheries, other parts of the Sahel. But it would be a stretch to describe that as some sort of unifying ideology, right? I mean, that's sort of mobilizing the RSF. I mean, looting and profiteering have also a lot to do with people's motives and why they're fighting as well. The Sudanese state has managed to create an extraordinary amount of grievance, basically, all across what are usually referred to as the uh, peripheries. You know, and in the Bashir era, that got mixed with both Islamism and quite a bit of racism against groups that weren't from this sort of riverine Arab center. Um, and so one of the ironies here is that the RSF itself was a group who arose from the Bashir regime arming Arabs to fight uh, non-Arabs um, in Darfur. Um, but then these Arabs in the periphery themselves have their own narrative of grievance. They feel like even though they fought these dirty wars, basically they were never accepted. They were looked down upon. They're treated as, um, you know, country bumpkins. 
and they feel marginalized uh, and they, it's very much a sort of rural austere culture versus these, you know, urbane commercial jalaba as they're called in the center. I really would not underestimate the power of that narrative for the RSF in their social media and their, in their influence campaigns and as part of even what we've seen that looks almost like a systematic wealth transfer because uh, part of the grievance against the Sudanese center in Khartoum has been that it has concentrated all the wealth in Khartoum. So you can see these sort of this grievance and greed, if you will, as it's sometimes framed, sort of overlapping. And you can see it as a reason why the battle in Khartoum basically devolved into a widespread sacking and something that almost looks like a, a class war at times. And there was a big piece in the New York Times what, about a month ago now looking at the Emirati arming of the RSF basically through this town in Chad near the border, uh, Amjaras. Is that where they're getting most of the weapons? Presumably they're also getting a lot of weapons from the Sudanese army itself when they capture bases. Clearly the RSF is managing to capture. There's quite a bit of video evidence of them capturing quite a lot of uh, stores um, from the Sudanese army um, throughout this campaign. Um, and Sudan is one of the largest producer of arms on the African continent. Um, so, so there were quite a bit of stores. However, yes, there's been news reports. And frankly, diplomats privately are very uh, explicit with us that uh, they see the UAE having, um, uh, so, some say, go, have gone all in uh, behind RSF. Some Western officials describe basically a sustained air bridge, as they call it, providing substantial support to RSF. And Sudanese themselves, including from within the army and, and military intelligence, but also uh, from you know other civilian groups, they also are very blunt with us. There's quite a bit of flight tracking data that's open source that shows flights from Abu Dhabi routing through various areas into places like Chad. And yeah, and then the news reports suggest that a lot of that is ticketed for the RSF. We'll come in a moment to the talks in Jeddah in Saudi and some of the reasons that uh, Riyadh has been reluctant to include Emirati diplomats in those talks. But I mean, just while we're on the RSF and Emirati support, I mean, what is motivating that support? What does the Emirates hope to get out of it? It's hard to get a direct answer for that. There's, it is somewhat opaque. You're also dealing with a polity that has its own sort of uh, court politics within the royal family uh, between Abu Dhabi and Dubai. But when you zoom out, the Emiratis, you know, like to have clients, and they tend to back those clients uh, for quite a while. Um, now, at the start of this war, the Emiratis were, you know, uh, also investing in the army side of things, you know, signing investment deals with SAF. Um, and they had this long standing link to RSF dating back to the war in Yemen, where RSF was contributing fighters. So I don't think the UAE ever meant to find itself on one side of a war. And it looks like they, as much as everyone else, is, have had, was sort of taken aback and appalled when, when Sudan fell into civil war. But it doesn't look like they've been willing to, to sever those ties, and instead they've sort of doubled down. I'm sure the fact that the RSF looks like it has the military upper hand hasn't hurt. Another side component of this war is that you have quite a resurgence of these Bashir-era Islamists on the army side who very much the, the UAE oppose coming back to power. Obviously, they oppose Islamism. So increasingly hearing rhetoric that uh, of backing the RSF, for instance, um, as, you know, as a proxy against the um, Islamists. And we'll talk about those Islamist militias in a moment. But before we do that, so the war started, as we heard up top, when Hameti, in essence, refused to integrate his forces into the army under the army's command. Now, exactly what triggered it is still unclear 
But Hermeti himself, do you see his motives over the last seven months as having changed? I mean, beyond keeping the RSF out of the army chain of command, what does he now want from the fighting? Hermeti, from talking to people who, who know him and have interacted with him, as well as talking to, to people in RSF who advise him, you know, I mean, Hermeti is someone who has a lot of ambition, increasingly seems to see himself in almost uh, messianic terms, sees himself as sort of heading this 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 bigger movement. Um, and he's very impressively sort of pulled himself from, you know, very lowly means to someone who has this vast uh, commercial security empire, was essentially number two in all of Sudan, and had made clear before the war that he wanted to be president. The key question is whether or not he ever wanted this war. Clearly, he escalated in the lead up to the war. But if he didn't actually mean to launch this war, maybe he's actually looking for a way out as well. There's been quite a few indications that Hameti has been willing to talk, not necessarily on terms that uh, many Sudanese would want to hear, but that he's been willing to talk since the beginning. Um, and he does come from this sort of aggrieved background, this Sahelian era Bagara aggrieved background that we talked about. And there is a sense that he's always essentially sought validation, sought affirmation, sought legitimacy. So I think all these things are there. He also has this enmity now with these Bashir Islamists, which has a sort of complicated uh, uh, background because he obviously arose out of the Bashir regime, which but also seems to be increasingly animating his thinking um, as well. I think that um, Hemeti is always interested to be part of Sudan's political future. That has not changed. What has changed is the structure and the objective of the RSF. It has morphed from a paramilitary force, basically the answers to the army, to a force that's on the same level as the army, and now a force that represents a whole group in Darfur, particularly, who have a lot of grievances against uh, various Sudanese um, governments, who they see have alienated them from power, but also from resources and development since the independence of Sudan in 1956. So now what the RSF itself, but also RSF supporters are calling for, is the end of the 1956 state. Basically to mean that a state that has been dominated by the riverine elite. So he's not trying to separate Darfur and rule Darfur itself. Uh, he's looking to dominate within Sudan as a whole. It might not be possible going forward because of the uh, atrocities that the RSF has committed but definitely the RSF, they will fight for some kind of political representation. Richard, just to rift off uh, some things that Shewitt said, if you look at RSFs, the way it has fought, it very much focused on Khartoum. It was not until recently that it's really focused on its campaigns in Darfur. It does not look like its intention has been to carve out its own zone of influence in uh, Darfur. Hameti and RSF still look intent on capturing the state to a degree and ruling in, in a national sense. But the other thing to note is that the RSF on the lead up to this war was really kind of freeloading off the uh, the Sudanese state and was making a lot of money doing so, but wasn't really having to govern or administrate in its own proper sense, um, didn't have really an official political agenda, although Hemeti himself would sometimes give very political speeches. One of the worrying aspects of this war dragging on and going longer is as RSF control, consolidates control of these areas, it's going to have to, whether it wants to or not, govern, administer these areas. Once that happens, you know, it becomes even harder to get them to step away from these political roles. 
RSF itself will inevitably change in a way that will be uh, difficult to unwind. And just one more thing, which yes, RSF is increasingly promoting this idea of a new Sudan. This is not new. Almost all rebel groups from the peripheries for decades have championed this. And that yes, the RSF is um, increasingly talking about this. Mediators worry that the RSF is going to increasingly table political rather than just security demands, but also many find it quite rich because the RSF's history is of fighting many of these other marginalized groups in the periphery. So the success of actually being able to convince other Sudanese that it does represent these interests is very much in question. Right, as you say, a bit rich that the RSF, which was a proxy of Bashir fighting on behalf of Khartoum against the rebels in the peripheries, is now adopting the rebels' own rhetoric about a new Sudan. Can we move to the SAF, the Sudanese armed forces? So, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the leader, the degree of support he enjoys within the army ranks hasn't always been clear. The army's performance has been generally very poor. It struggled to mount ground operations and it's now, as you said, sort of reliant on different militias, including these Bashir-era Islamist militias. But how would you sort of describe the army and the forces that are fighting alongside it now? Sudanese often say the important thing to remember here is that SAF is essentially fighting its own infantry. Um, and it's not that the army doesn't have its own forces. It has many garrisons and many tens of thousands of forces scattered across. But essentially, the army had outsourced its fighting to a number of groups over the years. But by the time this war broke out, the RSF was essentially the operable um, infantry ground force in the country. That, I think, is useful in understanding sort of uh, why SAF has, has underperformed so poorly. Um, so it's found itself in this situation then in which it looks basically holed up. And yes, it finds itself, uh, therefore, recruiting, trying to find more bodies, basically trying to create a functional infantry on the fly. And so uh, this itself has also proven quite costly because it, it's meant creating new allies. And um, increasingly, what we're seeing is that the Bashir era Islamists are increasingly powerful within the Burhan camp. The army is essentially arming and training these forces. But obviously, they have uh, some of their own agenda as well. And so army supporters, since the beginning of this conflict, keep claiming, don't worry, we have the air power. And it's just a matter of time before we mobilize enough ground forces to take on the RSF. I think very few people, even army supporters, still believe, uh, realistically speaking, that that's ever going to happen. And where is the SAF getting its weapons from? Well, we know the SAF is getting weapons. Uh, it's clear that it's getting supplies uh, externally, and, and we hear that directly from Sudanese sources. Most people look to Egypt. It's difficult for us to confirm. But there are, you know, the, the SAF has a lot more friends um, especially in the Arab world, than RSF does. Um, so there are a number of other capitals that it could be uh, coming from as well. Burhan recently renormalized, reopened relations with Tehran, and there is quite a lot of talk that Iranian drones are finding their way as well. Um, so I think support to the army is probably coming from a number of directions, um, and you know it's all very difficult for us to verify. Sure. So if the SAF is on the back foot and stuck in its bases in Khartoum and being pushed out of, of the, the west of the country, so how do you explain its reluctance to, to negotiate? Because although it's not clear what Hermeti would concede to in talks, he has been more seemingly more willing to actually sort of sit down with the SAF. 
but the Borokan and, and others have, have been very resistant to doing that. What explains their reluctance? Well, I mean, the army in 2019, a lot of army top leaders were let go uh, because of the revolution. A number of them were arrested and others were made to retire. Wuhan has been trying to call back a number of them, and these are seen to be very much uh, Islamist-affiliated, uh, particularly to the former party Bashir's uh, NCP party. And they are very much against any sort of uh, mediation between the RSF and the army. And this is because one of the non-negotiable demands of the RSF, and we've spoken to RSF representatives, and this is what they told us, their non-negotiable demand is for the army to distance itself from NCP Islamists. Uh, not just distance itself, but also to arrest those with outstanding ICC arrest warrants. So, I mean, it's going to be very difficult for the army to negotiate in any significant way with the RSF when the, the army is getting so much ground support from NCP Islamists. So before we move on to the talks in Jeddah, do you want to just say something about what we've been calling these Bashir-era Islamist forces? Shawit, you mentioned for a handful of them, the International Criminal Court has issued warrants. But more broadly, who are they and what are their links to the army and what's motivating them? We do not know uh, how this war started. Um, it's difficult for us to really say. But one of the leading theories is that it was essentially these Islamist forces. And of course, the army itself was heavily politicized under Bashir. Bashir himself took power in a coup. So he himself came from the military. So the army corps itself is also incredibly interlinked and interconnected with these Bashir era figures. And so one of the key theories is that it was the Islamists who actually uh, took advantage to spark this war. I think to understand where they stand on it, you have to realize they are the party that was the most squeezed out of what came before this war. They were resurgent since the coup in 2021, uh, in which Burhan did increasingly ally with them. But this war, many of them see as their opportunity to come back into power. So I think they realize that any potential deal at this point would likely return to something similar to what was there before. And they were sidelined. Bashir is still in military hospital um, under arrest. Uh, many of these guys have just uh, jailbroken. Um, so I think they, they think this is their time to fight, essentially. So they want to fight because for them, they don't have any other choice. They've been excluded from all political processes. The civilians don't want them to take part in any political process going forward. Maybe some armed groups are willing to include the NCP, but most civilian uh, groups are very much against the inclusion of the NCP in any political process. So how they see it is that this armed confrontation and fighting to win, even if it means just controlling a part of Sudan, is better than completely being squeezed up. So I, that's also a major difficulty that Burhan is facing. Uh, he is very, very unpopular amongst Islamists. And there have been d different rumors that they might uh, replace him at any moment. But they're also afraid of losing regional support if they do so. And Richard, just one thing quickly to add. 
This is more than an Islamist resurgence on the battlefield. The uh, old NCP has essentially, for instance, retaken over what is the foreign ministry. They're largely administering uh, the state. So you can see that within the Burhan coalition, which is still a significant part of the country, the Bashir regime is making a major comeback. But they are likely making a major miscalculation here because it's not at all clear that they can maintain some pocket of stability uh, on their own, which they can rule. This is a group that was okay previously, um, uh, allowing a significant portion of the country to secede, that being South Sudan, um, along with most of its oil revenue, um, in the bargain that it basically allowed them to consolidate more control over the Sudan that, that has left. So it could be operating a logic that's essentially fine to lose control of uh, the West part of the country um, if it can uh, maintain uh, and, and come back into power in, in the eastern and, and northern part. But I think that might be a very uh, bad calculation on its part. So last time we spoke, uh, Shewit Allen, was in June. And really since then, there's been this long hiatus in the Jeddah talks, talks convened in the Saudi city between representatives of the RSF and representatives of the army. And those talks really just sort of reconvened again over the past couple of weeks, just as, in fact, the RSF was making its gains. So do you want to talk a little bit about why, despite the sort of gravity of what's happening in Sudan, why the long pause? Yes, indeed. There were not uh, these Jeddah talks for some months. And so, so, you know, normally when there aren't talks, you assume that the reason is because the, the warring parties themselves aren't willing to, to sit down and discuss. That actually wasn't the constraint here. And it speaks to some of the oddities of the Jeddah talks. And really kind of what feels like an overall lack of urgency on the Sudan crisis, even though we're describing the complete collapse of a country. So after the talks suspended in June, There was then an internal U.S. debate about whether or not to restart them. Eventually, the U.S. went back to Saudi Arabia with a proposal saying basically that they wanted to continue Jeddah. They wanted to expand it to include Egypt and the UAE. That was an idea we've talked about before in the podcast. The U.S. also included other ideas, uh, such as including African representation, specifically through EGAD or EAU. So that that was roughly the proposal made to the Saudis to restart. Um, The Saudis did not agree to that for some time. And eventually the Saudis said, okay, we are not going, we do not agree to expand the format to include Egypt and the UAE, uh, but they were okay with including um, an EGAD representative. And just to add that some suggest, you know, if these talks do not make rapid progress soon, that Jeddah is essentially in a short leash. Um, and that, you know, the U.S. won't continue with the with the format. Um, but, you know, we have the two warring parties who are willing to talk there and Saudi Arabia might be keen to continue it. Um, so so unwinding Jeddah itself might also not be a simple affair either. And the talks are, are sort of oddly framed, right? I mean, they're about humanitarian access, mostly local ceasefires, confidence building measures, but they're not really political talks or not talks about a permanent ceasefire. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that came about and whether that makes for the most effective format? Yes. So normally when people are trying to end a very serious crisis like this, or at least halt it, the idea is that you bring the two main belligerents together and you search for some sort of commonality, some sort of grounds for for a deal that can at least end the fighting. Um, That isn't really quite what Jeddah is structured as. The Jeddah format originally came out of the very beginning days of the war, and there was 
no willingness, especially from the uh, Sunni's army side, to have any sort of uh, real talks at the beginning. And so the format for Jed at the beginning was to push for humanitarian ceasefires. So the idea was you instead have to, you know, focus on something more achievable and then hope that could build up to um, to a broader ceasefire. But what also happened during that period of time is that the U.S. came under heavy criticism from whether well, the mediators generally, but I think the, the U.S. was especially sensitive to criticism from Sudanese that they were bringing these two horrible belligerents into a room together who were who were not honoring any of the small deals they they were making, and in the same time, uh, civilians weren't there, and they were further sidelining and weakening civilians in the process. There was also a lot of criticism that you know it did include the AU or EGAD. America's response to this largely was to be very clear and firm that the talks in Jeddah were only of a humanitarian nature and would not get into the quote-unquote political side of things. I think we're skeptical of that strategy. It looks clearly like a situation where you need to have high-level diplomacy around the region with the belligerents, figuring out what it would take to get the two sides to agree to stop fighting. Just to add that the uh, mediators or co-facilitators, as they're called, you know, don't all see eye to eye on this. The U.S. is taking a very serious approach of trying to move up uh, through these humanitarian commitments up to something what they are calling a permanent cessation of hostilities, and then basically bridge that over to what they hope is a civilian-led political process or one led by the African Union and EGRAD. The Saudis, though, I think are much more amenable, as you might imagine, to just brokering an overall deal and ending this war, I think, in a more sort of straightforward manner. Obviously, I think there's a lot of concern among Sunnis and others about what a Saudi brokered deal might look like. And notwithstanding all that, did anything useful come from this latest meeting in Jeddah? So the Jeddah negotiations resulted in an argument basically focusing on our humanitarian delivery and confidence-building measures. The two sides agreed to a joint forum that includes OCHA and RSF and the army to not only facilitate aid to the areas that the two warring parties control, but also to provide security to humanitarian aid workers. Clearly, they have already agreed to these terms during previous talks and these agreements have not been implemented. So it's going to be very difficult to believe them before we see it implemented on the ground. The one thing that is different is that the RSF had demanded for a humanitarian corridor to be opened through um, Chad across to Darfur, but the army has clearly rejected this. And now this joint forum is going to be responsible for humanitarian coordination and not the Humanitarian Aid Commission, which is managed by the army. To my eye, the one thing I saw that looked like a possible step forward was the two sides agreeing to uh, try to move towards direct communication between the two leaders. We have not had, to anyone's knowledge, uh, direct contact between Burhan and Temeti. Um, you know, and there is a school of thought out there, um, including from leaders in Africa, that if you just got Burhan and Hemeti in the same room, you know, that a deal actually would be possible. So all this is obviously now taking place in the shadow of the war in Gaza. And you assume that most of the US's engagement with governments in the Gulf is now related to Gaza. I assume that means very little bandwidth for Sudan. I mean, do we see an impact of this yet? Obviously, having an, a new war in, in uh, Israel-Gaza, um, you know, uh, next door to Sudan, really, will only be a further distraction. 
when the U.S. is is talking to Cairo or to Riyadh or Abu Dhabi already, Sudan was at the very bottom um, or maybe already off the list, and now it'll be very difficult to bump that up further. It definitely doesn't look good. Um, just one more, like maybe anecdote. It took a very, you know, it took it took months of negotiations essentially between State Department's Africa Bureau and uh, Saudi officials to restart Jeddah because you have Sudan handled by the Africa Bureau and State Department. You know, the, it, it needs to get elevated to the Near East Affairs um, Department or even to the uh, Secretary of State in order to troubleshoot and basically get on the same page with the Saudis. It's clear after Israel-Gaza is broken out, you know, that sort of extra capacity um, is probably not going to be there. We haven't talked yet about the civilian side. So Sunnis, political parties, civil society, the resistance committees that played such an important role in the 2019 revolution. It's often been quite a fractious group and there have been these diplomatic efforts parallel to those in uh, Jeddah to try to forge a united civilian front, uh, get the sort of various different civilian groups to think through what a transition might look like. There are digital initiatives, but one was a meeting of civilian forces in Addis Ababa in October, a different civilian coalitions coming together. They called themselves um, the Civilian Democratic Front. They might change their name now, uh, but it consists of, for the first time, resistance committees. They see it as something that they initiated and that has been taken up by different political parties, uh, by civil societies, by uh, prominent Sudanese figures. So they agreed on basic principles. They have uh, two criteria for selecting members within that uh, civilian group. One is to be against the war between the army and the RSF. The second is groups have to be against the 2021 coup. And show it, aren't most of the civilians against the war and the coup? Or is this about who that civilian coalition believes should be part of a government and a transition after the fighting stops? So basically, uh, being against uh, the war means that they are going to exclude the NCP. They are very flexible in terms of those against the coup because it really um, means that uh, the democratic bloc, the JPA signatories, who continue to be part of government after the coup would be excluded. But um, in actual fact, they are willing to include this political group if they are willing to take part. So this is the first time since the revolution of 2019 that civilians have managed to come together, such a wide range of civilians uh, with different ideological backgrounds, but also very much divided before the conflict, come together to sort of forge the way forward for a political process in Sudan. So this might lead to an actual formation of a coalition that's representative of the Sudanese civilian forces. Uh, it hasn't reached there, uh, but we hope that they'll manage to include many other diverse voices. They're not against negotiations with the army and RSF, though they're also very clear that they will not accept their involvement in a government after a ceasefire has been signed. And a number of uh, international actors actually support their vision for a political process. Show it from what both of you have sort of talked about. There seems a bit of a tension in some of the civilians' sort of aspirations. I mean, on the one hand, of course, it's easy to understand why civilians don't want the generals to return to power. They don't want the people who have run the 
country into the ground to then rule it afterwards. They don't want the Islamists involved, you know, given that they've rejected the transition from the beginning in some ways. They don't think these RSF militia leaders from Darfur for a vision for the future of Sudan. They feel the whole transition, even before the coup, has been too dominated by the generals. That's why it's derailed. You know, they felt, I know that we've talked about this before, they felt that the world, that outside powers have vested too much authority previously in the military and military factions. On the other hand, their aspiration of a political process in which the military factions and the two military leaders play no part at all, it seems a stretch that that would happen. I mean, surely to stop the fighting, any deal would have to find some form of accommodation with both the army and with Hermeti, assuming that neither wins. And that by supporting the notion that sidelining them is realistic, by sort of fueling that expectation, I mean, maybe the diplomats that you talked about, Shewit, are they not actually making some sort of end to the fighting more difficult? As we talked about, some of the Islamists have taken up arms precisely because they were excluded. So, again, how do we think it would be feasible to exclude them again? Yeah, so I think that's a fair question, Richard. I think for us, it comes down to partly sequencing and it comes down to focus. Clearly, a civilian uh, political process, almost no matter how comprehensive, will struggle to make much of a difference uh, unless and until you're able to actually end the conflict. And so thus far, I'd say we've seen the preponderance of diplomatic activity on Sudan very much focused on the civilian track. Part of that's because almost everyone else, except for the Saudis and Americans, uh, you know, and, and in EGAD's just included, but that was recently, almost everyone else has felt excluded from uh, Jeddah. But still, there's a lot of activity in organizing all the civilian actors together. That in itself is good, but we need to see still high-level effort at trying to end the war between the warring parties. Um, And we would argue that there probably needs to be something more, almost starting at the regional level, going to Cairo, going to Abu Dhabi, trying to figure out what possible deals could look like, trying to get as close as you can to Hameti and Burhan themselves talking, um, and maybe figuring out a deal, a possible deal that could end this fighting. Um, And obviously, you don't want them to strike some deal that's uh, just overall power sharing that excludes civilians. You'd have to insist on a broader process, but you also can't let the perfect get in the way of stopping what's a completely horrendous collapse of Sudan. Frankly, we're concerned a bit that we're not seeing the level of high-level diplomatic activity we'd want to just because it looks like a losing proposition to many of the actors who maybe could do it. On the one hand, you either look like you'll hopelessly try to uh, stop a, a state collapse of Sudan, and that itself is a tall task. But even if you manage to to end it, you know, the likely alternatives all look like something like very dirty deals. You know, it'll be very difficult to get Sudan back on the path to civil politics anytime soon. And so any deal that will be brokered will be, um, if you're able to do it, uh, will itself be criticized. And we're just worried uh, not only that we're not seeing the coordination, not seeing the effort, but that those who have the capability to really do that at a high level effort, do they have the stomach to see that through? Or are people basically willing to let Sudan collapse instead? Yeah, I've heard that too, that some diplomats actually don't want the file, they don't want to get involved because they sense that the best you're going to get, even if, you know, and even that is probably a stretch, but the best it's going to be is some nasty deal between the two military factions. And, you know, they don't want to be tainted by that. They don't want to be slammed by civilians, by civil society for, you know, cobbling together some elite bargain. But of course, in the meantime, Sudan is falling apart. 
thousands of Sudanese are dying and millions are being displaced. Could I maybe just ask to end, could Hameti and the RSF actually take the whole of Sudan, so sort of move east? Frankly, it's just unclear uh, exactly how far the RSF can extend its military offensive. Uh, you know, I think it'll very much first seek to finish consolidating control uh, west of the Nile. It still wants to kind of finish off the job in Khartoum. The RSF itself knows that uh, marching east is opens up a whole nother can of worms. It would likely cause massive uh, war on sort of tribal and, and ethnic lines. It also risks, honestly, regional war. The prospect of the RSF sort of marching on Port Sudan on the Red Sea, in addition to all the uh, ethnic conflict that would likely break out, would be deeply concerning to Egypt, Eritrea, Saudi Arabia. I think the RSF strategy has looked much more like trying to uh, get the strongest hand it can and seek a national deal. But then the question is, you know, if there isn't a deal that is forthcoming, or let's say the army itself splits, then the question is, does the RSF stop? Does the RSF try to push ahead? I think these are very difficult questions to answer. And it's just it's just a bit unclear how far the RSF can go militarily, and what are regional countries willing to to put up with. Um, And then even if the RSF can mostly win militarily, uh, which is which is a real hypothetical, we're not saying it's possible. But even in that scenario, we would argue the RSF essentially is pulling its support from a very narrow constituency. The RSF's political image is completely uh, shredded. They're deeply hated by huge sections of Sudan, including the Sunnis' elite. In order to properly govern Sudan or to have a governed Sudan, even if the RSF uh, continues its sort of conquering drive, uh, a deal still looks necessary if we're going to put anything like a state back together in Sudan. But just to stress that, you know, this is all quite hypothetical at the moment. At the moment, RSF, you know, really controls the western part of the country and had very far ways to go uh, to get to the east. And these former Bashir Islamists are, are no joke. They held power for a very long time, you know, and the RSF's deeply hated by many of the areas that they have not conquered yet. Show it, Alan. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard, for having us. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Sudan on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Check out also our sister podcast, which Alan hosts, The Horn. It's a dive every two weeks into Horn of Africa politics. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly, Atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, if you like the show, please do say something nice about us. Leave us a positive rating or review. We'll probably go back to Gaza next week, given the scale of devastation there. So I hope you'll join us for that.